Okay, great. Well, welcome everyone. It's good to see a nice crowd. And um, hopefully it wasn't just the title of tonight's specific class that drew you here, although it is an intriguing title, The Mystery of Evil. And what do we mean by that? Well, the word mystery here is not an Agatha Christie type of mystery. Rather, it's something that's hard to understand. It's something that's hard to explain or account for. It's something about evil, like the mysteries of our faith, resists our understanding, right? It resists a simple, straightforward explanation. And so it takes some thought, some speculation to to understand more deeply. What's mysterious about evil? Well, the nature of evil, first of all. We'll talk about that for a while tonight. The nature of evil in itself. To answer the question, what is evil? How can such a thing exist? Why does such a thing exist? That's something, because of what evil is, it's hard to explain, it's hard to account for, it's hard to wrap our minds around. The effects of evil are also mysterious, are hard to understand. Suffering, especially human suffering, and all of its various manifestations, physical suffering, psychological, moral suffering. Evil that's very clearly evil, right? The cruelty, it's hard to understand how people do certain things or why. The suffering of innocence is especially problematic. And so this question of the mystery of evil really becomes a part of something called theodicy. And theodicy is a part of theology and or apologetics, which is a kind of rational defense of God. And so one of the big questions of the mystery of evil is if God is good and all-powerful, how does he allow evil and especially suffering to exist? Or what's the justification for that? We can start with the nature of evil. What is evil in itself? The most mysterious and the shortest answer that our tradition gives us with a very good argument behind it. What is evil in itself? The shortest answer is nothing. Pretty mysterious. Evil is a form of non-being. Right. What's the argument for that? Everything that exists is either God, right? everything that exists at all is either God or created by God out of nothing. God, however, is absolutely good and all of his effects are good. God can do no evil. God does nothing wrong. Therefore, insofar as anything exists, it is good. Evil is the opposite of good or goodness. Therefore, evil in itself does not exist. Evil is nothing, or at least a form of non-being. God is good. Therefore, creation is good. To exist, it is good. Right? Because God is good and creation is good. Therefore, evil does not exist.
Any questions? That was the shortest class I've ever, I've ever taught. Well, of course, the, the, uh, the question or the consideration, right, that comes to mind is, well, that's not true, right? Obviously, evil does exist. As we mentioned before, there are cruel actions, there are unjust actions, there are terrible diseases, there's death, suffering of various kinds, things that we all experience as forms of evil, manifestations of evil. If everything that exists is good, what is evil about those things? How can those things be? And so what we, what we come to now to consider is, as a first kind of entry point into the mystery of evil, maybe this is the first entry point, right, that if everything that exists is good, how can evil, the opposite of good, exist? What we have to ask ourselves now is, well, where does the possibility of evil come from? And that will kind of lead us into the nature of evil, what evil is. The possibility of evil comes from creation not being God. So if you exist at all, you're either God or not God. If you're God, you're the only one who's God. And you're the only one who has specifically divine attributes. What are some of those? Well, the important ones for us is that only God is immutable. Right? Only God can't change. That means, among other things, that God can't get better, nor can he get worse. Only God also is the... God alone... Yeah, it's hard to put this in good grammar... God alone is purely actual. It is the only absolutely perfect being. And so when God creates anything else, it will be good, but it can't be as good as God. So God is absolutely good, which includes immutability, right? You can't change. And absolute perfection. Now, a creature, by definition, not God. And these are attributes that God cannot share with a creature because the creature would be God. God can't create another God because there's only one God. If God created another God, it would be God, and there's only one God, and that's impossible. So if you're not God, that means that in some respect you are changeable, and subject, at least possibly, to some imperfection. Right, some lack of actuality. And so since some creatures, since all creatures are changeable, that means it's at least possible for some of them to lose goodness and even to lose the good of existence. And since no creature is absolutely perfect, it's possible that some may lack some perfection that they could or should have. 
And that brings us to the classical definition of evil. The classic definition of evil is not pure nothing, but that would be pure evil, which does not exist. But rather, the definition of evil that actually works is that evil is the lack or the privation of a proper or due good. Right? Evil is the privation or lack of a proper or due good. <clears throat> what does that word proper mean? Well, it means that if you're a certain kind of being, certain attributes or faculties or activities are natural and good for you to enjoy or have. And if you lack them, it's evil that you're less good as that kind of being if you lack these things. And so you can think of the the classical example is blindness. What is blindness? Well, it's a lack or it's a lack of sight. There's something wrong with the physical organism that incapacitates the person with regard to a, to a, uh, a power and an activity that, given their nature, right, a being that should have eyes, right, and be able to see, certain kind of brain, nervous system, given their nature is natural or proper to it. Disease in general, right, is a lack of health. Death is a lack or loss of life. Moral evil is a lack of the rectitude of the will. And so all of these examples of evil kind of all show themselves to be privations of something that should be there, of an excellence or perfection or an order, right, that all things considered is supposed to be there or should be there. And so this is very interesting. This is kind of part of the mystery of evil, that evil is in itself not a positive thing, right? It's a privation or a lack of something positive, of a good. And so therefore we could say that evil is always parasitic on the good. And therefore also on existence, right? Or being. And so you'll never see pure evil. This is part of the reason why it's so scary. And ghosts, right, the really scary thing about a ghost is if you lift up the sheet, that there would be nothing there. If there's someone there, it's like, okay, there's a person with a sheet on. If there's nothing there, it's like, ooh. Right, and the, uh, uh, what are they, the, the Nazgul in Tolkien? Right? They're like, nothing. Right? Um, they're heading towards not being. And not being is scary. Especially if it's you're not being. And so, and so this is uh, one of the scariest lines in the gospel I've always found is when Jesus talks about people condemned to hell. It happens at least twice. One is, the, one is in the parable of the, of the foolish and wise virgins. Another is a, a parable of, uh, of judgment where he says, I never knew you. Right? That he'll say to those condemned to hell, I never knew you, which is very powerful. I think it's an image of this, that evil is, evil destroys the good, right? And so uh, sin distorts or 
uh, corrupts or disfigures the soul so much that God says, that's not the person I created. That's not the person I called. I never knew you, which I always found terrifying, right? Absolutely terrifying. The possibility that God wouldn't recognize us at, at our judgment. Thomas Aquinas and Augustine both helpfully distinguish between natural evils and moral evils. And um, they're almost two different kinds of things, but they're good to talk about, both of them. Natural evils, if they're really, properly speaking, natural, are justified by the common good of the universe or by the common good of the created order. And so for Aquinas and Augustine, they're not really evil. They're only evil from a certain point of view. So what's an, what's an example of that? Well, the death of a squirrel. And so a squirrel is just the kind of thing in the natural order that eventually will die. And that's bad for Rocky. <laughs> right? It's bad for the individual squirrel because the individual squirrel, like, okay, it wants to live. But maybe not, right, when it gets to be whatever the old age of a squirrel is, maybe it's just like, oh, I've had my squirrel life and uh, now it's time to die. But we still see that there's something bad, right? Uh, the squirrel is in its prime and a hawk comes and gobbles him up. Well, then we can see clearly that's kind of an evil from the point of view of the individual squirrel, right? I had more squirrel things to do with my life. I had a couple squirrel, good squirrel years ahead of me and it's been cut short. For Aquinas, that is only an evil from the point of view of the individual, but it's justified and it's not evil when you look at the order of nature as a whole. If squirrels didn't eventually die, there would be too many squirrels. There'd be a gigantic nut shortage <laughs> in, in the forest, right? And so... The death of merely biological creatures is, in a certain sense, the flip side of their, of, of reproduction. Right? The good of reproduction, what Aquinas calls the good of the species, entails the loss of existence or the individual evil. And so that kind of natural evil, uh, the destruction of things that are very clearly not eternal, and so God is absolutely good, God is immutable, God is absolute perfection, God is also eternal, which means that he has the fullness of being from all time into all time, that he contains all time in itself. Well, there are some beings, because they can't be God, right, they're mortal by nature. And so although the squirrel's death is a dark point for the squirrel, Aquinas says, if you look at nature as a whole, or paintings, this is the example he uses, if you look at a painting, the dark spots are important for the beauty of the whole. Right? Without the darkness, you don't have the contrast with the light. Now, this is just Aquinas. Um, although I think there's good, there's no good scriptural evidence that the animals in the garden we're going to live forever. Right? Our, the, the Catholic Church has always taught and, and uh, Christians have always held that Adam and Eve had uh, 
the gift of immortality, that they weren't going to die. But it was a grace. Their souls were immortal, and they were made for life. And so if Adam and Eve hadn't fallen, they wouldn't have died a natural death. But there's nothing in the Bible which says, oh yeah, and uh, the giraffes also are going to live forever. Now, people can argue with that, right? That like how much, how much uh, natural evil was caused by the fall. Certainly some of it was. Like what? Well, it depends on what you think is evil in nature. Certainly, the, the, if there were no fall, there would be no disease that would affect us in this way. And so a lot of the tension between the human being and nature is post-lapsarian. Right? It's an effect of more, not just, it's not just a natural evil, it's a moral evil that affects the natural order. Does that make some sense? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Um, so what I'm trying to say is not all natural evils are necessarily part of God's original plan. Certainly not the ones that affect us. Right? God's original plan for us was eternal health and harmony with creation. Now, whether or not the lion was lying down with the lamb before the fall is a kind of disputed question. I kind of doubt it. I think lions, well, I think two things. I think lions need to eat other animals. And I also think that um, God provides prey species with the ability not really to suffer too much while they're being eaten. (laughs) That's hard to believe, but people who have had like uh, encounters with bears or sharks, If you get a limb like bit off, the shock of it kicks in so much that you really don't feel much pain. Um, Now, since you're a human being, that's still problematic, right? You're like, oh, this is a really bad situation. (laughs) But if you're not, you're just like, "Uh," you know, this is why rabbits die very easily. They're like the perfect prey species. Like if you get a rabbit scared enough, it'll die before you even like, (laughs) because the heart just stops. Okay, I'm dead. Now you can eat me. Um, so rabbits rarely suffer when they're being eaten. It's kind of interesting. So this is what I'm trying to say. Well, some people might say, oh, how could God create a universe in which lions eat lambs? Yeah, we, it, since we anthropomorphize everything and we know that lambs feel to a certain extent, we're like, well, that doesn't seem like the best system. Um, but you've never been a lamb being eaten Right? So maybe it's not that bad. <laughs> There's actually neurology behind this, right? adrenaline and, and uh, all this stuff. Anyway, um, good. So some beings are not made to exist forever because they're not God and they're not spiritual beings. And so old age or the good of the uh, good of the species or the good of the natural order justifies <laughs> their destruction, right? The destruction of the, in, of the individual. All right, now we can um, move to moral evil. And this is evil more properly speaking. For Aquinas and Augustine, natural evils that don't affect the human species right, are not really, strictly speaking, evils. They're evils only from the point of view of that individual um, physical being. 
So in the category of not God, create, uh, creatures, we have spiritual beings and material beings. And then we have the, among spiritual beings, we have the human being, who's also material because he's bodily. And so the discussion of moral evil is really kind of a bridge between the discussion of evil, the nature of evil, and the problem of suffering. Moral evil like all evil, is a lack of good. It's a privation of good that should exist. The difference here is that, unlike natural evil, where the good seems to be part of God's plan for the good of the whole, and simply a natural result of the creature, the material creature especially, not being God, you're not having immutability and eternity and all this. Moral evil is the fault of the creature itself and only of the creature. It's not just a limitation of being a creature. And therefore, it's not justifiable. It's not part of God's original plan. It's not just evil from a certain point of view, but it's evil more absolutely. And so you can't say about moral evil that God uh, allows it for the individual because or God wills it for the individual so that the system or the whole can benefit. Whereas you can say that, at least according to Aquinas, about a squirrel or an ant or any other non-spiritual being. Now here again, we have a, we have a important um, series of truths. All of God's creatures are good, created good. Man is good. The human being is good. Our free will is good. Moral evil or sin is a misuse of free will. Sin is caused, therefore, by a misuse of free will, not by God. I guess that's the important thing there. The Christian theological tradition has always defended this, this um, truth. God is not the cause of evil. In the sense of sin, right? Real evil. The cause of sin is the misuse of free will by spiritual beings. First the, devil, first the devil and the other fallen angels and then the human being. St. Augustine adds another layer of mystery here. He says, what is the cause of the misuse of the will? Nothing. If there is no cause. In a way, he's being rhetorical the cause is the will itself. 
And so there's no, ex there's no explanation for evil outside of the freedom of the will. The cause of the misuse, according to Augustine, is nothing else, right? <laughs> There's no cause outside of the will for the will's evil in sin. That's why it's responsible. Now, that said, the first primeval or original sins, the fall of Satan and the fall of Adam and Eve, or the fall of Satan and the other and the other demons, and the fall of Adam and Eve, in a certain sense, were more deliberate than our sins because they lacked concupiscence and they lacked a disordered will. And so since we inherit original sin, we're kind of inclined to evil. We have evil desires from the body, we have evil emotions in our soul, and our wills are kind of inclined to sin, and our intellects are clouded, right? They're not as clear about the difference between good and evil. Adam and Eve had less of an excuse than we do because they didn't um, have the inclination of the will to evil caused by original sin. They didn't lack the knowledge, the clarity of knowledge of good and evil that we lack. And there was no war inside of them between their uh bodily desires and uh, and their mind the truth of the truth of the moral law the devil and the fallen angels are even more responsible <laughs> and free than Adam and Eve were why because the devil comes and tempts Eve and so even though she didn't um, have the proclivity to sin that we have, because we suffer from the state of original sin. Nevertheless, she did have some sort of outside influence in, in the nature of uh, the devil's temptation. Okay? And what did this first, to these two first totally free sins consist of? What was the sin of Satan and also the sin of Adam and Eve? It was the sin of pride. And this is super important to understand for our Christian faith and for your own relationship with God. The origin of evil, the, the original evil act or sin was pride. Where did that pride come from? What did it consist of? It consisted of a rejection of this. That being a creature means you're not God. And therefore a rejection of God. To say I reject not being God means I reject being subordinate to God. I reject being what I am, what I was made to be, that which I was made to be. And that's, a, that's pride, right? What is pride? Pride is the disordered love of self, 
or the disordered or exaggerated love of one's own excellence, to the exclusion first of God and to the exclusion of others. And so in the prophet Jeremiah, we have that, um, that summary of Satan's response to God, non serviam, right? I will not serve. And then we see this in Adam and Eve. Satan first tempts Eve with mistrust of God. Right? He goes to her and says, did God really tell you not to eat of that tree in the middle of the garden? And she says, yeah, he told us, and if we did, that this would happen. And then the devil says, you will not die. And God knows that if you eat of it, you will know good and evil, and you will become, you will become gods. And so Satan reinterprets for Eve God's law, which was a condition for Adam and Eve remaining in a good relationship to God, right? being okay being creatures, accepting some condition of their creaturehood, right? use your freedom in this way and not in this way. Satan comes and interprets it not as for their good and for their communion with God, but rather as a power play. Right, that God really is out to keep you down because he knows that if you disobey, you'll be like him. And so what does Satan sow? He sows distrust of God. He sows competition in the place of communion. He sows a kind of power struggle in the face, in the, in the place of familial love. He sows pride and suspicion in the place of humble acceptance of the other. And this is why, uh, outside of the virtue of charity, which is love, which is communion with God, which is the restoration and grace of the right relationship with God, realizing that God is trustworthy, that God is our Father, and therefore loving Him, outside of charity, the most important virtue in the moral life, or one of the most important virtues, is humility. St. Augustine is asked once, if you, what St. Augustine writes once, he says, if you were to ask me what is the most important teaching in the, I'm summarizing, I'm paraphrasing, what is the most important uh, teaching in the morals of Christ, he would say, in the first place is humility, in the second place is humility, and in the third place is humility. Humility, humility, humility. Now, the beautiful thing about Christ is that Jesus comes to undo this suspicion that the revelation in Christ is the revelation that God is love. Deus caritas asked that God is not out for our, uh, not, God is not out for our undoing, right? that God is trustworthy. And so Jesus teaches us that God is our father. Jesus teaches us that God is all provident. Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. And all that is saying, look, I'm trustworthy, right? God is trustworthy. And this is the summary of St. Saint, of Saint John. So we have known and believe the love that God has for us. Right? Because of what they see, saw in Christ, we have known and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. And so all of our life really is this kind of choice Right, to trust being, because God is a source in the heart of all being, to trust that the heart and source of all being is good, 
or to suspect it and to, and to kind of rebel and take care of ourselves. That's the, that is like the source of everything that we experience and have to go through, humanly speaking. And this is not easy because sin and pride is seductive. Right? There's something very powerful about wanting to be God. If there's something difficult about saying, no, I am not number one. I'm not in control of reality. I'm not in control of my own life. Precisely, it's humiliating. And so we tend to, because we buy into Satan's non-servium and because we're affected by original sin and by our own sinfulness, we tend to distrust God. And this is why God is so uh, merciful. I mean, God's crazy. Um, <laughs> no, because you can be like, you know, you can still be selfish. You, God loves you so much. You can be selfish to the last moment of your life. And if you just say, God, I'm sorry, I don't want to go to hell. He'll say, okay, come on at the purgatory and, you know, we'll take care. We'll, take, you know, we'll clean this up eventually. I mean, it's just like, but that's what we don't believe, right? That's what we don't, that's what we don't trust because of the suspicion and because of the self-centeredness, right? And because of the, of the, uh, of the rift, where we view, we view most things in terms of power. And so Jesus says, when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because they do not believe in me. What does that mean? It means the world thinks that sin is good because God is an enemy, right? Because God and others are not trustworthy. And so I have to take care of myself and I'm the guy in charge and I'm going to make my decisions and I'm going to make my way and I'll treat others well, but only insofar as it serves me. This is a big thing in life, I think. It's like lots of people are good until they don't have to be, until they can get away with being bad or until it really serves them to be bad. And so the world is wrong about sin. The world, the world thinks that sin or breaking the moral law is no big deal because they don't really believe that, God, that the laws of God are good or that, they're, or that they're subject to them or that they're good for them unless they're going to get caught and punished. And so Jesus says, you're wrong about sin because you do not believe in me. And to believe in him is to believe precisely in the goodness of God. Right? Because Jesus comes and says, I'm the Lamb of God. This is, this is what God is. God is not your enemy. God dies in the place of your sins, right? And so there's no, God is humble. Right? And so Satan looks at God and says, oh, he's number one. I want to be number one. But if you look inside of God, you see three persons and none of them says, I am God alone. You see the Father generating the Son, the Son loving the Father, being okay being the Father, the Father's okay being the Son, you know, being the Father of the Son, the Son's okay being the Son of the Father. They love each other so much that they create the love of God, which is, which is the Holy Spirit, right? But it's all selfless, right? It's not individual. 
it's 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 a com, it's a communion of persons, right? That is perfectly in love with each other, and they're therefore perfectly humble. Right? Families are an image of this. If they're going well, if they're going well, right? <laughs> if not, there's Somalia. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know if that's the best example anymore. I don't know what's happening in Somalia. Maybe it's a perfectly peaceful place now. But I've been anyway. Yeah, right? Families are kind of an example of this. That When they're going well, insofar as they're going well, it's like, yeah, we're just holding this together and what's mine is yours and the, hand, the hand-me-downs are accepted and okay, my brother ate too much cereal, I'll punch him and get a granola bar. You know, you just kind of get along, right? And you're in it together and you just accept each other because of what you are and who you are. Obviously, the, those fam- familiar relationships are marked by sin as well, sometimes very seriously. So back to this idea, just, yes, well, next time we'll talk about suffering, all right? Next class topic, I make these up as I go along. (laughs) (laughs) The topic of the next class will be the problem of suffering. How's that sound? Good. What's cool about evil is that this nature of being parasitic of the good is also a kind of a contortion of the good, which makes it very seductive and at times very hard to recognize. Because there's even something... Pride, pride is a good example. Right? Your own excellence and your own agency is a good thing. And so the, when... when so this is Augustine's this is Augustine's definition of sin. Aversio adeo et conversio ad creaturas. A turning away from God and a disordered turning towards creatures. Right? A turning away from God and a turning towards creatures. Where's the evil there? God's not evil. The person doing the turning is not evil in, in himself. Right? He exists. The creatures aren't evil. The evil is the evil is in the very turning. And so evil ends up taking many, many different forms, as many forms as finite goods take. Evil can be comfortable. Evil can be painful. Evil can be pleasurable. Evil can be satisfying. Evil can be hidden. Evil can be out in the open. That's kind of cool. In a scary way, but... And so when the church talks about sin, many times this word comes up, disorder. Which goes back to that lack, right? Disorder. Sin and sinful, ten- and sinful tendencies are disorders. It's a lack of the right order, a lack of the right relationship, a lack of the right direction, a lack of the right priorities but always piggybacking on something good and kind of contorting um, something good. And so gluttony, well, this food is good and the pleasure of eating food is good. But when you love it too much, when the disorder, it becomes something evil, right? Lust, right? Sex is good, right? Marital intimacy is good. But when it's taken out of the right context or in the right relationship or... Um, enjoyed in the wrong way, well, then it's it's evil, right? It's lustful. It does a lot of damage. 
etc., etc., right? All evils are, are simply disordered relationships to natural goods. One last consideration before we can have some questions. There's a distinction that I think I find very helpful. When we talk about goodness, there's a, there's a distinction between the order of nature and the order of perfection. So something could be good and very good in the order of nature. What does that mean? It's good in the nature that God gave it in creation, and it's good in the being that God gives it and continues to give it. But not good in the order of perfection. The order of perfection is the, in, in the individual's achievement of the goodness or the perfection that's inherently potential in its nature. And so by the order of nature, right, I can be, in the order of nature, I'm better than any dog because I have a higher nature. Because I have a mind, I have a will, right? I'm a spiritual being, not just a material being. A dog is simply a material being that's very interesting and alive. But in the order of nature, my intrinsic dignity as a human being, I'm always better than any dog. However, there might be, and there are, dogs who are much better specimens and representatives of their species than I am as a, as a, as a person, right? And so, and there might be dogs who are worse because their owners they don't take care of them or because they get some disease or whatever, right? And so I think this is important to, to, to consider that, for instance, Satan or the, the demons, they're greater than us in the order of nature. They have a higher nature. They're more powerful spiritually. But hopefully, they're more evil in the order of perfection. And so there's this old Latin saying, I don't know in Latin, the corruption of the best is the worst, right? The corruption of the best is the worst. And so it's kind of interesting, and we have to circle back to this problem next time because I haven't defended God enough here. But it's kind of interesting that in the order of perfection, you can be worse than the worst animal because you're doing it on purpose and you have more capacity to do damage. And so the highest evil being is very, very evil. That's why, that's why when the devil shows up, it's a malignant force, even though he can hide it, right? Um, but when he really shows up, it's very malignant, right? It wants to destroy goodness. It wants to destroy innocence. And the worst people are malignant, right? They, they, they want to destroy existence. They want to, they really are out to do harm. And that makes you worse than the worst dog. Because the dog is not the dog's fault, right? And somewhere along the line, if it's truly evil, it's your fault that you that that you're this way. All right. Next time we'll we'll defend God from uh, the charge that He should never permit suffering. Right, we'll try to talk about that that problem of theodicy of suffering, which is an extension of the problem of why does God allow evil? Okay. Any questions on tonight's? Class, yes. I have a question, though, actually. Nothing is a question or answer. Yeah. Um, you had mentioned that you uh, didn't have the inclination of original sin. Mm-hmm. And because of that, 
but we're kind of blessed in a way. Is that how you would say that we have original sin? So we have that, not blessed, but. Well, we have more of an excuse. More of an excuse. Yeah. Yeah. It's harder for us to be good than it was for them. And therefore, they were more culpable. But they are us. Yeah, so the doctrine of original sin is that they represented all of us because they were our, our parents, right? And so with our first parents falls the whole family. And so we're not directly responsible for it, but um, in a mysterious way, kind of, sort of. Yes? But in that idea that we were, had original sin and they didn't and still sin, in the hierarchy of concept, they have to be higher than us because they never had the sin to begin with. Do you know what I mean? Like maybe they fell down below or wherever, and or but yeah, different because we already had it, so somehow it's still yeah. They were created in they were created in grace, and so they had several gifts from God that we no longer enjoy. Can no longer. Enjoy. Well, we will in heaven. Okay, but not through original sin or not through good works or anything. We can't get there. Not to some of those gifts. Right, so they had the gift of um, integrity, which means that, um, well, they had the gift of immortality. They weren't going to die. The gift of integrity, which means that they didn't suffer disordered desires. And so the problem now is that there's like three levels at which we can, we operate. Loving God in the right way, and then there's our ego and our will, and then there's also our body and the things of the world, material things, which are more attractive to us than they should be. Material experiences and material things. And so we can go wrong with egoism by worshiping our own excellence, our own accomplishment, accomplishments instead of God, or we can go wrong by becoming materialistic in some way, through intemperance or avarice. And so that's what St. Paul talks about, the, the spirit wars against the flesh. Adam and Eve didn't have that. They didn't have concupiscence. So they weren't tempted by lust or overeating or laziness. Their body was perfectly subject to their to their intellect and their will. Yeah. They also didn't get colds. <laughs> Tim, no question tonight? Yeah, I have a question. Oh, good. <laughs> Is it correct to say that evil always has existed and always will exist? No, incorrect. Except for the kingdom of heaven. That's when evil ends. Well, no, I mean, well, it depends on what you mean by always. So I would say it was there in the garden. Right. And if evil is nothing or nothingness, God created good creation out of nothingness, right? Yes, but that's a different kind of nothingness. So, um, to say 
to say pure evil doesn't exist or is nothingness is not to say that it's that nothingness is something. It's just to say that both are nothing at all. Yep. And so when God creates everything out of nothing, it's not like there's some sort of positive evil mixed into the goodness of creation. So Although the possibility of evil is there, the possibility of lack is there because they're not the fullness of being, which is God. Augustine, you're, that's a very deep question, an interesting question. Because Augustine does talk about creation falling back into nothingness or having a tendency to return to nothingness. Which language does kind of give a certain somethingness to nothingness, in my, opi- in my opinion. As if there were some sort of place to go in nothingness that creation was prone to tend back towards. If that makes some sense. Yeah, it does, and that's one way of looking at the entire Bible story, right? Is that battle between something and nothingness. Yes, but even if to say a battle between something and nothingness is not to call, is not to conceive of nothingness precisely as nothing, no thing at all, right? So it's tricky. Um, However, the background on that is interesting because Augustine was a Manichaean and the Manichaeans were dualists. And so Augustine was coming out of um, years of thinking that matter was evil. So there were two basic, it was like Star Wars. There's the good side of the force and the bad side of the force. And so the dualists and the Manichaeans among them thought that there was a principle, a prime primeval and primordial principle co-equal with the good principle of evil. So like two gods, the good God and the bad God. They kind of like fight and the fight is this world. And so our spirits are very fine material. It was all materialism, our very fine, like airy material things trying to escape the entrapment of matter. And our bodies are the material principle trying to pull us down. And so Augustine escapes that and comes to think that, no, God is only good and God therefore only creates good things. But I think in that argument of the creation kind of like falling back into nothing, there's a little bit of a remnant of the, of the Manichaean um, dualism. However, it is true <laughs> that we can't escape the fact that we're entirely dependent on God. And so there is a sense in which nothingness is always right around the corner. Although God's a good creator, right? So when he gives existence, he really gives it. And that would be, the, that would be Aquinas' answer to that kind of Christian existential nihilism that we're uh, skating around here. Mm. Aquinas' answer would be, no, when God gives being, he gives being. And being is solid and God's a good creator. And so don't worry about falling back into nothing. Although if God wanted to, he could do that. But he won't because he's good and he doesn't go against his promises. <laughs> so don't worry, you'll never not exist. It might not be fun. It might not be, you know, it might not be fun, but you will not. I don't know you. Huh? I don't know you. But yeah, but that's just, I mean, that's scriptural language. I mean, you're still there. He's still talking to someone, right? He'll say to them, to the same being, He's saying, I don't know you. 
I mean, annihilation would probably be a annihilation would probably be a better fate than hell. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's why Jesus says it about Judas, right? It would be better if he were never born. Mm. Scary. Okay, good. Any other questions? No. Yes, One? I do have a question. Sure. We are surrounded of all that evil. We are trying to do the best. How do we discern, it's not discern, if the solution is being humble? Well, that's, that, that, that's a big part of the solution. Yeah, part yeah. of the, the, so the, the, the better way to avoid all those materialistic... Yeah, so you have to live a Christian life. Yes, but how do we how do we coexist with all that? The Christian life being humble and not humble. And yeah, no, I, no, I think that's a great question. Um, boy, that's a great question. We are falling. We are losing all the time. So <laughs> even when we try the best. No, don't despair. No, I. I have faith, and I know we tried our best. Yeah. Faith. But that's what I... No, I, I think I get what you're saying. Um, so yeah, it's clear, that we're, it's clear that we're in a post-Christian world. And so a lot of the customs and the moral principles, and also, unfortunately, the grace that came through having a larger portion of our society baptized that's a real thing when people get baptized original sins washed away the devil's exercised and so the more you live in a pagan and it's truly a post-christian neo-pagan society not entirely right um but substantially yeah, the more difficult it is, it's going to it is going to be to be a, a Christian because you're going to have to clash with your environment. You're going to have to fight those cultural influences that affect you, that affect your friends. But it's entirely possible. I mean, the first Christians did it with no Christianity around, no institutions. I mean, they, except the ones that they were. Yeah. yeah. So I would say you have to figure out what is God. You know, there's. A couple things. One is prayer, humility, being sorry for your sins, and then figuring out how God wants you to love Him and love others, right? Doing the will of God. And if you do that, there's nothing to worry about. Perfect love casts out fear. Yeah. Which means perfect love casts out fear. It's a beautiful line from St. John, and I think it could be read in both ways very fruitfully. One is the love of God, if we really believe that God is our Father and we trust the revelation of God as love in Jesus Christ, right? We know that we're going to be okay. God's going to take care of us as long as we're sorry for our sins, we're trying our best. The other is that if you love, well, then you don't really worry about anything else, right? Because uh, fears are the flip sides of your loves, and so if you're loving God and loving your uh, family in the right way, 
you know, a lot of your fears go away. Because nothing else really matters, you know. And, and, you know, if you couple that with a trust in God, well, then, yeah, you got a solution to, like, live in any time. Even if they're flaying you alive. Which I hope they don't. But they might. Not you, probably your, your grandkids or something. <laughs> They'll be okay, too, right? God loves everyone. God never changes. All right, fine. Before I scare anyone. <laughs> More than I already have. Okay. Why don't we wrap it up there, and then if there's any other individual questions, we can ask them afterwards. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Holy Mary, our hope, handmaid of the Lord. Pray for us. Great, thank you.